Please join me in the prayer for illumination. Let us pray. Dear Holy Spirit, come into our hearts and quiet our minds so that we can hear your word clearly. Teach us to learn your ways and put them into action. Encourage our faith and strengthen our will. Amen. Our scripture today comes from Genesis chapter 1. Hear these words. When God began to create the heavens and the earth, the earth was without shape or form. It was dark over the deep sea, and God's wind swept over the waters. God said, let there be light, and so light appeared. God saw how good the light was. God separated the light from the darkness. God named the light day and the darkness night. There was evening and there was morning the first day. God said, let there be a dome in the middle of the waters to separate the waters from each other. God made the dome and separated the waters under the dome from the waters above the dome. And it happened in that way. God named the dome sky. There was evening and there was morning the second day. God said, let the waters under the sky come together into one place so that the dry land can appear. And that's what happened. God named the dry land earth and he named the gathered waters seas. God saw how good it was. God said, let the earth grow plant life, plants yielding seeds and fruit trees bearing fruits with seeds inside it, each according to its kind throughout the earth. And that's what happened. The earth produced plants life, plants yielding seeds, each according to its kind, and trees bearing fruit with seeds inside it, each according to its kind. God saw how good it was. There was evening and there was morning, the third day. God said, let there be lights in the dome of the sky to separate the day from the night. They will mark events, sacred seasons, days, and years. They will be lights in the dome of the sky to shine on the earth. And that's what happened. God made the stars and two great lights, the larger light to rule over the day and the smaller light to rule over the night. God put them into the dome of the sky to shine on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. God saw how good it was. There was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. God said, let the water swarm with living things and let birds fly above the earth in the dome up of the sky. God created the great sea animals and all the tiny living things that swarm in the waters, each according to its kind, and all the winged birds, each according to its kind. God saw how good it was. Then God blessed them. Be fertile and multiply and fill the waters with the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. There was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. God said, let the earth produce every kind of living thing, livestock, crawling things, and wildlife. And that's what happened. God made every kind of wildlife, every kind of livestock, every kind of creature that crawls on the ground. God saw how good it was. Then God said, let us make humanity in our image to resemble us so they may take charge of the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, all the earth, and all the crawling things on earth. God created humanity in God's own image. In the divine image, God created them, male and female, God created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fertile and multiply, fill the earth and master it. Take charge of the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky, and everything crawling on the ground. Then God said, I now give you all the plants of the earth that yield seeds and all the plants whose fruits produce seeds within it. These will be your food. To all wildlife, 
to all the birds of the sky and to every crawling thing on the ground, to everything that breathes, I give all the green grasses for food. And that's what happened. God saw everything he had made. It was supremely good. There was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. In first service, my children make so much noise, my goal is to preach over them. In second service, my kids aren't here, and I get to love and hear children that we've baptized, and it's such a joy to have them as a part of our community. So July 10th, 1925, John Thomas Scopes, a young high school teacher, is accused of teaching evolution in violation of Tennessee law. The law which had been passed in March made it a misdemeanor punishable by fine to, quote, teach any theory that denies the story of the divine creation of man as taught in the Bible and to teach instead that man has descended from a lower order of animals. In 1927, the Tennessee Supreme Court overturned the monkey trial verdict on a technicality but left the constitutional issues unresolved until 1968 when the U.S. Supreme Court overturned a similar Arkansas law on the grounds that it violated the First Amendment. The Scopes trial, a famous trial in U.S. history. On August 23rd, uh, 2012, the internet forum Big Think posted a video entitled, Creationism is Not Appropriate for Children. It was posted on YouTube, and the, vi the video featured Bill Nye, one of my childhood heroes. Bill Nye, the science guy. How many of you remember his show from the 90s? And, wow, most of us, right? Famous guy. Loved, loved, you all enlightened like me. Watched him in little beakers. It was very fun. Uh, so fast forward to February 4th, 2014, at the Creation Museum in Petersburg, Kentucky. Ken Ham, he's the gentleman on the left there. He uh, is founder of Answers in Genesis and CEO of Young Earth Creationist. He challenged uh, Mr. Bill Nye, who was a science educator, to debate over the credibility of creationism in the classroom. As Ham understands creation, uh, creationism, and the answers in Genesis page will tell you, it teaches that the earth is 6,000 years old and that dinosaurs and humans uh, coexisted together at the, planet, uh, at the planet at some point in time. So folks, this is an ongoing conversation among uh, pastors, intellectuals, lay folks, people you sit next to on the airplane, uh, <laughs> freshmen in college. Uh, it's an ongoing conversation in the high school biology classroom. Uh, I just want to take the temperature of the room. How many of you have ever had a conversation with somebody about evolution, creation, or the book of Genesis? Raise your hand. See, this sermon might, might be helpful, maybe to some of you, right? That uh, happened in the first service too. If you are a Christian, this is bound to come up. I really don't like telling people what I do for a living, because uh, as soon as you say, like, you're a pastor, they're like, so, <laughs> right? Uh, you, uh, you believe in Jesus, huh? And I'm like, here we go, right? It was down the list. I'd much rather say, like, yeah, I just work at Dow, and they'd be like, cool, right? <laughs> just end the conversation there. But I don't have that luxury, right? I'm like, I'm a pastor, and I know the questions are coming. And the top three questions I get all the time, right? They say, so, um, you believe in Jesus, right? And I'll go, yeah, yeah. And for some reason, their follow-up all the time is, so, like, you, uh, you believe in the Bible, 
right? And I don't know why it's the follow-up, but it is. And I go, yeah, yeah, I, I believe in the Bible. And then always the follow-up is, do you believe um, everything in the Bible? Right? And I'm like, no, I only believe uh, one, one like every other word or something like that. No, it's, of course, yes, I believe everything in the Bible. But that's the, the sequence of events. It's just how it goes. Uh, and I think many of you probably had similar conversations with people when they find out you're a churchgoer, you're a Christian. Um, we get those questions a lot. But when we read a scripture like this, when we read Genesis chapter 1, we would ask the question, how in the world should we understand this chapter? Because we're about to find out that there's, there's tons of ways to understand it, and lots of different ways to sort of look at this passage. You can read it as sort of seven literal 24-hour days. You know, Mr. Ham certainly believes it was such. Uh, you can read it sort of as creation, as literary metaphor, and it's sort of just a great piece of literature. You can read it as seven non-24-hour God-like days, right? What is a day to God? It is like a thousand years. And, uh, you know, God exists outside of time and space. And so time and space are funny. These 24-hour days, they're not 24-hour days to God. They're much longer. You can read it as such. I think that's a fair reading. You can read it as an existential poem, right? These, these people sort of placed in the garden, and they're sort of feeling around for meaning and purpose. And I'm sure there are plenty of other good reads on Genesis chapter 1. But before we, we hop into this, if we haven't already, uh, I think it'd be helpful to define some terms that we're going to encounter, define some terms that you might have already encountered that could be helpful. So the first is theism, right? Theism, brought to you by the letter T. So theism believes in the existence of a god or gods. If you are a Christian, you are a theist. Uh, they, these gods create, and in some case, sustain the existence of the world. And there are monotheists, right, one god. And then there are sort of polytheists, you know, like, like many gods. So folks who say, like, I believe, in, I believe in one god and one god only. And there's folks like the ancient Greeks who said, we believe in a, a pantheon. Of gods. You have Athena and Zeus and, and all the other folks who gather around and sort of do things, right? That's polytheism and monotheism. That's all under the big umbrella of theism, brought to you by the letter T. Now, our second vocab word for the day um, is atheism, brought to you by the letter A. And atheism is the absence of a belief in the existence of any god or gods. Now, what I wanted to do is actually just put up a picture of, like, a blue sky. If we go back one, right, it'd be like, go back one, it'd be without, without god. You'll get it later. It's, I promise. I thought about doing it, but I didn't, so um, I thought it'd be funny. Atheism is the absence of a belief in the existence of any god or gods. And hear this. If you are an atheist, and how many of you know an atheist? You can claim one. All right, I, I got my atheist friend. I'm like, this is my... He's mine, right? I can claim him. He's good. Um, <laughs> existence, hear this. Existence has no meaning for atheists except for the meaning that they give it as humans. You cannot reach outside and say, ah, I have divine meaning, or God says, you know, do this or that. You, you, if you're an atheist, you can't do that because you don't believe in God. And there is no moral code that is given from a divinity, from any sort of divine person. Right? There's no moral code given from God. Morality is built and ethics are built by humans. If you're an atheist, you have to believe that. Okay? It makes logical sense. Our third vocab word for the day, and we only got one more, so hang in there with me. I promise we're going, is agnosticism. 
And agnosticism, uh, I'm not going to really tell you what that's about. I'm just going to show you. Uh, I'm going to let Trey uh, Parker and Matt Stone from South Park actually tell you more about agnosticism. This is where you'll sleep with your foster brothers. You will be clean, polite, and most importantly, you will follow the agnostic code. We cannot know with certainty if God or Christ exists. They could. Then again, there could be a giant reptilian bird in charge of everything. Can we be certain there isn't? No. So it's pointless to talk about. Now say it with me. <laughs> it's one of, my, one of my favorite episodes where he gets adopted by like a militant agnostic family and they make him believe in maybe believing in something, right? So uh, you get the irony. I think it's hilarious. Uh, this idea could be a giant reptilian bird. Who knows? Um, so that's agnosticism. Like we can never know. We don't know. Right? It could be something. Maybe. Who knows? And the last one is, is naturalism. I want you to hear that naturalism is incompatible with Christian belief, right? Today I'm going to argue that science, not to be confused with naturalism, science has deep compatibility with Christianity, but not naturalism. And naturalism is going to argue a couple things. First, the seeable, observable world and universe is our entire reality. Our entire reality is only what you can see, observe, and measure. So you can measure this here, but you can't really measure like spirituality, right? It's not like 12 inches long and 14 deep doesn't work that way. So naturalism has no room for that because it's not seeable, it's not observable, you cannot measure it. The material and physical uh, world are real, right? They're real, they're physical, but they are closed. They are closed. There are no forces that can enter into our existence and sort of mess with us for good or bad, right? Naturalism would argue that this is a closed system. And lastly, our senses, taste, smell, right, feel, our senses are our gateway to knowledge. Our senses are our gateway to knowledge. You cannot understand any other way than your empirical evidence will allow you to understand. That's naturalism. So science, like religion, is interested in some very, very big questions. And over the next few weeks, we're going to tackle some of those and sort of uh, walk through this series called Thinking for Christians. Today, we're going to talk about sort of evolution and creation, and all of us raised our hand, right? We've all engaged in this conversation at one point in time, so hopefully it'll be helpful. Next week, uh, this is kind of brought to you by my dad. My, da my dad had this saying that said, son, God gave you a brain, so use it. Um, and that was my excuse for not doing very well in math. Uh, so you'd <laughs> so always say that. But this idea of, do you have to check your brain at the door when you come to church? Or can you somehow engage your faith with your brain? Right? So that's reason and faith. And the last week, or week three, we're going to talk about the ongoing role and growth of technology in our lives. What does it, what does it mean that we are in a relationship with an all-knowing God if there's an all-knowing Google? Right? Yeah. You might, it's kind of funny to think about, but like, do you really need an all-knowing God if you, if you just ask Google? Do you have need for this God? God can't answer your questions. Google can. And so we're going to engage sort of in that conversation. What does it mean to be an incarnated Christian and sort of walking around in flesh and engaging with a God who chose to live with us? So science... Religion, they all have these sort of big questions. And the role of religion is to ask particular questions. And the word religion, of course, 
has a lot of baggage to it. Maybe you've met people like this who say, well, you know, I'm not so much of a religious person, but I'm spiritual. I like spirituality. And I go, I don't know what you mean by that. And they go, well, you know, I don't like the religious stuff, like the Crusades. And I go, yeah, I don't know anyone who's like a fan of the Crusades, right? Uh, so, but I understand what they mean. I get it. And this idea of religion, it's got some baggage. But religion is, is asking some deep questions, some, some heart questions. And some of these questions are the great human questions of our time. And they have really big philosophical terms and titles, and I don't want to bore you or myself with those. So I'm just going to ring them off here without the fancy words. They ask these questions like, is there such a person as God? That's a big human question we all ask at some point in time in our life. Is there such a person as God? How should I live my life? Right? Is there some sort of moral guidelines to me living? That's a big question. What about life after death? Is there any reason to hope in a life after death? What about our, our place in the universe and our, and our relationship to the observable? You know, what about our relationship to like the trees and the animals? Can I just cut down all the trees? Is that, a, is that a correct way? These are big human questions that we all have at some point in time. And religion seeks to answer them. I want to argue, too, that science seeks to answer them as well, but they also come together and meet beautifully at times. And so the role of science, um, many, many of you in this congregation are, are scientists. Some of you have, uh, sci- I'm just curious, if you say you're like a scientist, you've got like a sciencey degree, you work for a sciencey job, right? Big, big, how, just raise your hand, I'm just curious, how many of you? About similar in the first service, about a third to a half of y'all are sort of scientists. Now, my household, right, we are um, a house divided. We have uh, some sort of spiritual preacher guy, and then I'm married to a scientist. So I get it, right? My wife, she did her undergrad at Purdue University. I'm sorry, it's like the A&M of the North. And uh, she, uh, she did her uh, undergrad in biology. She wanted to be in vet school, got the interview, which is really hard to get. She goes, I don't want to do this anymore. I said, okay, honey. And so uh, she went to the University of Cincinnati for her master's in medical genetics. And she's a faculty member at McGovern um, Medical School at UT. Once again, I'm apologizing to all the Aggies in the room. So uh, that's just, that's like her. She's a scientist. She, she works uh, in, in a hospital. I get it. I get, understand science. But um, many people don't fully understand the scope of science in our lives. I'm not talking about not understanding organic chemistry, okay? No one in this room gets it. No one understands organic chemistry. It's okay. But we like to think that science somehow is trying to do something that it's not supposed to do. People treat science as if it fills something in our lives that it never meant to fill. This is from a book that I recommend. It's in the bulletin, I think. It's by Alvin Plantiga. He's a professor at Notre Dame in Indiana, my home state. And uh, he says this about science. He says, some treat science as if it were a sort of infallible oracle, like a divine revelation. Or if not infallible, science is at least the court of last appeal. Science is a method. It doesn't necessarily provide all the answers. Sometimes it explains things, but it doesn't say, here's your answer for you. And that's profound when we sort of shift our understanding of science and when we shift our understanding of religion. So we ask the question, can these two live together? And I think absolutely yes, because sometimes they're seeking the same things, going about it in different ways. So let's go back to this text, this Genesis 1. Sorry, there's my science slide. One more. 
<clears throat> this Genesis 1 text, and a few things that we need to note about Genesis 1, and I'm not going to bore you with a whole lot of stuff, hopefully, uh, but I think this is helpful, because we all said that we engage people on this topic of evolution and creation, and Genesis 1 is usually part of the conversation, is it not? So, the first thing that we need to recognize is that Genesis 1, what exactly is it? And it is a polemic, which is a fancy term for a stated argument, right? You often uh, might come across these articles online that would say, like, against diet and weightlifting. And then they're going to have a whole entire article based on different data on what to do. Or they're going to say, against peer-reviewed articles, and then they're going to talk about that. Or they're going to say, against uh, crowdsourcing articles, right? You get the idea. These sort of against, against, against. And Genesis 1 stands as an article against certain things, which raises the question, right? Well, what is it standing against? It's a great question, and we know that there are other sort of creation narratives that are circulating around during the time. You have, of course, the big powerhouse in the ancient Near East, Egypt, and Egypt says, oh, there were these gods, and they created this way, and Genesis stands up and says, ah, uh -uh, no, 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 no. In the beginning, there was nothing, and, and God created, and God called it good, and there was day one and day two. And the Egyptians go, no, that's not how we know it. And the Hebrew people said, I know, but, but hear the word of God. It's, a, it's, a, it's standing against that. There's a, a Babylonian uh, text called the Enuma Elish, and it's sort of a, a creation narrative. It does the same thing. There was a sort of a pagan belief that the gods would all fight. And then after these cosmic gods were slain out of their corpses, like that was how the world was made. And the Hebrew people said, oh, no, that's, that's not right at all. See, let me tell you a story about a, a God who existed before time and, and who created us and molded us and put us in a garden and wanted to be in relationship with us. It's a polemic. It's sort of saying, I'm against these other varying views of creation. Let me tell you how it happened. That's first and foremost what it is. The second thing that we need to kind of get our mind around is identifying kind of what genre this is. Right, like if you open up like your U.S. history book and you want to read it like a comic book, you're going to have a bad time. Right, it's just not going to work for you. If you need to go write an email to like your mom or your dad and you write it like a business memo, you're going to have a bad time. Like your mom and dad are going to be like, "What? I don't care about the line items of your household." Right, it doesn't matter. It's a different genre. And so when we engage in a different genre, that kind of shapes and forms how we see that particular medium, right? If you go to the Museum of Fine Arts downtown in Houston, you enter in and you walk into a museum of fine arts. You're not going to a bakery. It's a different genre. Your experience is shaped by the genre. So, this raises the question, what's the genre of Genesis? Good, I don't know. Good luck, right? I don't know. Scholars don't know. No one knows. There's no sort of consensus on what the genre is. But there are pieces that we see in Genesis, right? It's part historical documents. It's telling the story about kind of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and some people, and some names are dropped, and some locations, right? It's part sort of creation narrative. We already talked about how it's a polemic. It's talking about sort of like, no, no, it's not those Egyptian gods. It's not that person over there. Let me tell you about this god, Yahweh, right? That's sort of a part of the genre. And third is it's, it's part poetry, right? And you could hear it, like vague mentions of it in the English. On the first day, there was evening and there was morning, right? Second day, there was evening 
and morning. And God called it good. And that's how it happened. On the third day, there was evening and morning. The fourth day, there was evening and there was morning. And then, and then there, God called it very good. It's got a, like a, a sort of a cadence to it, a rhythm and a rhyme. And that comes through beautifully in the Hebrew. And we've tried our best to make it come through in the English. And it's very difficult. But it's part poetry. It's part creation. It's part history. So the third one is that it's, it's really not a history book. Right? For some reason or other, right, um, if you think of this history, our history books in the Old Testament are like Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, so on and so forth. There's 11 of them. That's all the history in the Old Testament. And then Genesis is like over there in the law section. It's like the Dewey Decimal System got messed up for a second and someone misshelved it. Like, it's over here, right? It's outside the history section. When it talks about history, it's just kind of in the, it's in the law section, the Torah. And I think it's at the right spot, right? It kind of kicks things off. But it's definitely not with the historical books. And so it's not a history book. To read it as such is you're reading the genre wrong. You're going to have a bad time. It's interesting. And the last, lastly is it's not a science book, right? Perhaps the questions that we are asking Genesis, Genesis was never meant to answer. It's like looking up answers to geometry in a U.S. history book, or asking the book of Genesis, tell me more about quantum mechanics. And Genesis goes, in the beginning, there was nothing, and, and God was there, and God created. And you go, no, 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 no. Tell me about, like, the rotation of electrons. I need to know about that. And Genesis goes, I don't know, but in the beginning, God put us in a garden, and, and God walked with us, and God wanted to be amongst his creation and be there in community with you. And you go, I'm not satisfied. Tell me more about electromagnetism and dark matter. And the Genesis goes, I don't know about that, but let me tell you about this God. And you go, you're not, you're not answering my question, right? So imagine for a second it's raining outside, and you've got to go to work. And you're sitting there, and you're like, I wonder what like, the, the traffic patterns are in Houston. So you, know, you turn on the TV, and you go to ESPN, and you're sitting there, and you're like, they're not talking about the traffic and the weather, right? They tell you about the NFL draft, and they tell you about the scores, and you get all mad. Like, is that really fair? Should you be mad at ESPN? Absolutely not. ESPN's doing their job. It's doing what it's supposed to do. Maybe we're asking the wrong questions of Genesis, which for me raises a question. Really, what questions should we be asking Genesis? Right? What is the question that we need to be asking this text? What does the book of Genesis have to say? I did youth ministry for about 12, 13 years. You start to lose track after time, right, Anthony? You sort of like lose track of time when you're in youth ministry. Um, and I did youth ministry for a long time. And I used to tell the youth who said they didn't have enough time to read the Bible. I said, I, I get it. That's great. I said, if you're going to read the Bible at all, I need you to read six books, just six books of the Bible. You need to read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You need to read Paul's letter to the Romans, and you need to read Genesis. Those are some of the books that sort of build a lot of conversation around Christianity. Out of all the times I talk to folks about God and about Christianity, I'm referencing the Gospels, I'm referencing Romans, or I'm referencing Genesis. Read those and then read the rest when you find your time. I don't know what that means. But Genesis is an extremely important book. It's, it's one of the fundamental texts of religion in the world, and it is one of the most fundamental parts of our story, simply because it's our story. Genesis locates us in our, narr in our narrative. And I don't like to argue with people about whether God created the earth in seven days because no one knows and no one will know. 
And I don't like to argue with people about if Adam and Eve were real historical people because, quite frankly, I think the beauty and truth of the story is that it doesn't matter. God created, and they very well could have been real historical people. But for me, living in 2018, the beauty and truth and story of Genesis is that God created, and God wants to still be involved in our story. And that's powerful. That's powerful as we read that text. The story of Genesis is about our origins. It tells us that before everything we see around us existed, before the laws of physics, the theory of gravity, before neutrons and protons existed, there was God. God is the first position of the universe, the unmoved mover. God is the author of life, the guider of evolutionary process, the sustainer of physics, and the architect of quantum mechanics. And God created humanity and put us on the earth, and God called it good. So the whole of the story is this story about a God who would risk it all, who would take on skin and get into the game and come down and be in relationship with us and pursue us and love on us. And that's the beautiful story of Genesis and the story of our faith. For me, that's profoundly different. I think it's insane. It's incredible. To me, it's good news. And so to Mr. Ham, I say, yeah, maybe I should start a whole entire business called Answers in Genesis. I just think I might be asking different questions about the text. And I believe it's about a God who wants to be in relationship with us, who kind of risks so much to love on us. So may we be a faith community that comes to know this God more fully, a God who creates, sustains, and gets involved in our lives, a God who came to live, die, and show us that there is still a more excellent way to live. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.